Hey Stonebridge, I don't even want to, I don't want to mess with that moment. Um, would you guys just honor God and just honor even Shane for leading that worship time? Just we're so 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 blessed to be able to be a, in a room in a house that is led by elders, led by pastors, led by incredible worship leaders. So just what a gift, guys! What a gift Shane and this team has been to you, to this house, to to Stonebridge. Glory, glory, hallelujah, Jesus, you're good. I'm supposed to like check my notes before I come up and speak, right? And I just couldn't do it, right? It was that good. I took me out of note checking mode. I was jacked. I'm super pumped. If, if we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Rudy Hartman. I've been out here a couple times. Uh, I am actually from Des Moines. Good, uh, I'm, I'm the college director, college ministry director for the Salt Company down there at Cottage Grove Church. We're about two years old, coming up on two years right now. And, and it is just an honor and privilege to get to come out and spend time here at Stonebridge every few months. Uh, your lead pastor and just elder team are, are just friends. I, I love them a great deal. You've got a great leader in Matt. Um, in, in the last last year, right about now, I, I was personally feeling super nervous because I'd just gotten off a plane from spending a month in China and then a month in Malaysia, and then I was stepping into a brand new role as the Salt Company director in Des Moines. Now I feel even more nervous because I've actually had my whole summer here in Des Moines, in Iowa, chilling, but I'm getting married in 13 days. So like that is like way more nerve wracking than lead, than like trying to lead a college ministry. And all the married men said, yes, yes. Um, guys, like I'm super jacked to be able to uh, spend the rest of my life with this woman, Molly Peterson. Um, it, but man, she is going to need to show me a lot of grace. Uh, that's for sure. So I, I just wanted to take a little bit of time just to unpack kind of who I am, honor your leaders, and then just like spend just a moment uh, saying just from an outsider perspective why it is so good that this renovation is happening here at Stonebridge Church. There is something uh, unequivocally beautiful about the idea of place. You guys are here in this place, in this city, in this town, at Boone. And here's what everyone around who has seen construction going on in this location, here's what they're saying. Here's the gossip about you, Stonebridge Church. They're saying, oh, they're here to stay. They're saying, oh, okay, they, they believe in this community. Oh, okay, this church actually wants to double down on the ability to have more than one service, on the ability to have a, a space that is inviting and welcoming to people who are far from Jesus and who don't know him to make new service times available so everyone can come in and worship Jesus together here in this place and in this space. And that idea of place just communicates this idea of ownership. And Stonebridge Church, I, I just want to say, just from an outsider perspective, perspective how incredible it is and how like like worshipful how encouraging it is to me to peer in on a local church that is owning that idea of place and is saying we're here we want to see Boone uh, wrecked with the gospel we want to see the gospel continue to move across the city and across this town so I want to thank you it it is a joy to my soul to get to just be a a tiny little part of that as I uh, continue our series this morning in broken saviors so if you got a bible you can go to Judges chapter 3 Judges chapter 3. 
as I was trying to prepare some stuff for this message, I was thinking, what would help us get in the idea and the mindset uh, of this chapter of Judges, right? Matt did a great job kind of breaking down, listened to the message this week, uh, breaking down what happened in Judges 1 and 2, what some of the context is for the book of Judges, a lot of war going on, a lot of fighting going on. So I sat there and kind of went through like the category of awesome war movies in my brain this last week, right? I'm sitting there like 300, incredible, don't watch it but incredible war movie. Gladiator, right? Right up there with it. Warrior, it's like a Hallmark movie for like dudes. It's ridiculous, right? So I'm sitting there going through all these like war and fighting movies. Like how can I get in the right state of mind to do this? How can I think of like these heroes that, uh, that we see in these stories, these heroes that we're gonna read about even today in the Bible, these broken saviors. So I turned to the NBC hit show, The Office. Um, so how many people in here, you guys watch The Office, right? Okay, so we're in that text. That's really good. All right, so I thought about this moment in The Office when there was a completely unexpected hero that arose in the midst of the story. Now let me give you a little bit of context, right? Jim is a paper salesman in the office at Dunder Mifflin. He's been liking this receptionist girl, Pam, for quite some time, but she's been engaged to this dude, Roy. So instead of uh, trying to go after Pam, uh, Jim leaves and comes back, and when he comes back from a different branch of this paper company. He's dating this other girl named Karen now. So here's the stage that's set, right? You've got Jim and Karen are kind of at their desk. They're about to leave for the day. Uh, Pam is behind her receptionist desk and she's doing her receptionist thing. Everybody's about to go for the day. Uh, And and, and here's one thing you've got to know. Jim and Pam have kind of talked about their feelings. At one point, Jim kissed Pam. Wow. Like it's crazy drama that's going on in this office, right? Like Jim has kissed Pam uh, while she's still dating Roy. Roy and Pam have broken up. They've broken off the engagement, called it off, and Roy's blaming Jim for it. Here's what happens at the end of this day. Everything's as normal. It's just, it's just chilling in the office. Everyone's saying bye, whatever. Karen and Jim are kind of planning their evening together. And then you see Roy, just this hurt man, uh, walk into the office and yell, Halpert! Right? That's Jim's last name. And Jim turns around, and all you see in his face is fear. You, you just see fear in his face. He's just like, okay, yeah, you're done, bro. Like, that's exactly what he's thinking. I'm about to get, like, that sick knuckle sandwich across the face that I deserve. Now, you got to think about this, right? Because Jim's kind of wronged Roy, right? Jim has, like, tried to hit on Pam. Jim's tried to gone after Pam for quite some time. And now Roy's like, hey, uh, you've done something wrong against me. I'm here to give you the consequence for the thing that you've done wrong. And Jim's like, I know it. Like, you can see it in his face. He's like, I'm tanked. This is done. He's got just enough time to get Karen out of the way before Roy, like, trucks this dude. Right? You got to think of it this way if you've never seen it. Jim's, like, kind of a tall, lanky guy, and Roy looks like a linebacker that just, like, got cut for some, like, moral reason or whatever and had to work at a warehouse. Right? So, like, this is the situation we have here. And then here's what happens. Out of nowhere, Dwight. Dwight Schrute. Jim's kind of mortal enemy slash friend. It's a weird relationship, right? Stands up and pulls out pepper spray out of nowhere and maces Roy in the face as he's running at Jim. It's crazy, guys. No one expects that to happen. Here's what's nuts. Dwight's the hero. Nobody expects Dwight to ever be the hero. Jim just definitely does not expect Dwight to be the hero. You can see it in his face. In that moment, Jim, in that moment, has been delivered. He is experiencing peace. He's like, I'm not going to get the crap beat out of me. This is amazing, 
right? He is experiencing the joy of being delivered. He is experiencing in that moment a peace from battle that was about to go down between Roy and Jim. Here's what we're seeing in this text. We're seeing a hero provided that brings peace to Jim. As we look at Judges chapter 3, we're going to find something really similar, actually. I'm going to give you one idea, and it will kind of flavor the rest of our time together. I'm going to read four verses. We're going to pray and jump in, but here it is. Here's the idea. If you're taking notes, this is for you. God provides heroes to bring his people peace. God provides heroes to bring his people peace. Just like Jim was facing a consequence for something that he had done wrong, and then had a hero provided for him, so too are we going to see the people of Israel have a hero provided for them, even in the midst of them suffering the consequences for doing that which was wrong. We're going to jump into that. But God provides heroes that bring his people peace. Let me, let me read Judges chapter 3, just verses 1 through 4, and we'll jump right in. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. We're going to come back to that. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath. They were, f- they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he'd commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. God provides heroes who bring his people rest. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good, and you are kind, and you are just. Um, Would you help us see what it means for you to be our hero today? Would you help us look at this text and just be confronted by our own brokenness, our shortcomings? But Father, we, we recognize that you are good and you do good. So may the words that I speak and the very meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, for you're my rock, you're my strength, you're my joy. You are the lifter of my head. I I ask that you would, by your spirit, illuminate this text to our souls this morning. We want to see you more clearly. We want to honor you, love you more. We want to know you more. God, would we not leave this place the same way that we came in? Please, King Jesus, it's in your name. Amen. All right. So so the book of Judges, we heard last week, right, begins with a portrait of the Israelites taking the promised land through force. In fact, they were to drive all the other nations out and take this land that God had promised them. Now, Matt did an awesome job. If If you weren't here last week, go back and check out that podcast. He did an awesome job breaking down why that was actually just of God to command the Israelites to take this land in Canaan. In any case, they actually fail to do so. Or what they do is they capture the other tribes and subject them to forced labor rather than running them out. Eventually what we see is the Lord sends an angel in chapter 2 to rebuke them because they've gone after the false idols of these other tribes and have made covenants and promises and linked themselves to this other people that they were supposed to be separate from. It's in this encounter that we start to see these first words that we read in the book of Judges chapter 3 being framed as the angel of the Lord speaks out of, towards the people in chapter 2 and says, I will, dr- I will not drive the other nations or tribes out, but they will become thorns in your side and the gods will be a snare to you. So Judges 3 is actually a continuation shocker of Judges 2. Right, So we're going to see it kind of pick up on the last three verses of Judges chapter 2 where he says, uh, in order to test Israel by these nations, this is why God is leaving the nations, whether they will care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did 
or not. So what we see happening at the very beginning of Judges chapter 3 is this idea of the Israelites being tested by God. The question we have to ask is, what will that test look like? We know what that test should elicit. That test is going to show whether or not the Israelites are going to follow God like their fathers did or whether they're going to follow their own way. How is he going to test them? He's going to test them through this. Uh, Look at chapter 3, verse 2. It was ordering that the generations of the people of Israel might know war. Now that's interesting, right? So why would God want to teach his people to know war? Doesn't that kind of seem like a little counterintuitive? What, what, what is going on here in this text? Is this kind of like, all right, sweet, we're going to be like that scene in Mulan where there's like the crazy montage of we are men and like all the Israelites are kind of doing like their Israelite boot camp. They're like, we must have strength of the raging tigress, right? Like, is that? That's, no, like that's not the situation that's happening here. He's not saying, hey, we're going to put a boot camp together and teach teach the Israelites how to go to war. There's actually something significantly different that's happening here. In fact, uh, this is pretty key to understand what's been going on in the life of the nation of Israel. A brief overlook of the book before Joshua shows that knowing more for the Israelites is basically this. It's knowing how to fight, show up to fight, and wait for God to do something that will deliver us. Knowing war is almost akin, is right on the borderline, it's, it's synonymous nearly with trusting God. Think of it. Think of all the times that the Israelites went to war under the leadership of Joshua. Think of Jericho. Do you imagine how insane of a battle strategy Jericho is? Hey, yeah, uh, walk around the walls of that city six times, and then on the seventh day, walk around it uh, seven times, and then blow your horn, and the walls will fall down. You're kind of like, um... Or we could just like attack, right? Like that's how we're thinking. Here's what happens. Lord moves in that situation. Uh, Another situation in which something similar to this happens is in the valley of Aijalon. Here's what's crazy about this place. The Israelites are wrecking shop on the Gibeon. They are doing work. They are destroying this other nation. And here's what happens. The sun's going down. They're going to run out of time to just completely dominate this nation. So here's what Joshua does. Joshua looks up in the sky and says, sun stands still. And the Lord gives them an extra day. The sun remains in the sky so that they can continue to wreck this nation before them. Now that would be cool if that's all that happened. But here's actually what happened just before that. The Isra- God actually hurls like, ball- it depends on the translation that you read. But God actually hurls stones or some translations read flaming hail at their enemy to destroy them in front of the Israelites. <laughs> Guys, knowing war for the Israelites is a whole lot different than figuring out battle formations and strategies. Knowing war for the Israelites is akin to trusting God. It's predicated on trusting God. It actually called for the Israelites to have a humble stance before the Lord, knowing that they could not make victory happen on their own. These, uh, there were, these were the ways of their fathers under Joshua. This means of war was almost worship. It was the people looking towards the situation and understanding their need to trust that God would fight for them, that God was fully and completely in control, and that he was the one who brought victory, and he was the one who brought rest. So the question we ask here is, would the generation know war like their fathers? Would they be those who trusted God in the same way that their fathers had under Joshua? We kind of see this tension building in verse 4 of Judges chapter 3. But if we keep reading on, we actually see something different. 
verses 5 and 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Israel has, as it seems, failed this test that was before them. Would they walk in the same commitment? Would they walk in the same commandments as their fathers? It actually looks like the answer is no. It looks like uh, verses 5 and 6 show that they live among this people, that they marry into them, that they give their daughters to be married into uh, those nations, and they take that nation's daughters to be married into their nation, making a marital covenant between the two, something they were explicitly asked not to do. And then further, they actually go ahead and worship alongside of them. Interliving, intermarriage, interworship leads to an indistinguishable integration. It is as though any of the borders between the Israelites and these other nations uh, in any way, socially, uh, spiritually, all of these other ways have actually been shattered and blurred. They are becoming like this people and it would seem as though they have completely become indistinguishable from them and in so doing have failed this test that God has placed before them and here we actually see something kind of shocking Stonebridge because here's what would make sense for God to do it would make sense for God to completely abandon them it would make sense for God to say you've not followed my instructions You've not followed my commands. You have broken the covenant between me and you by covenanting with them. You've broken worship between me and you by worshiping their gods. I'm done. I'm abandoning you. And yet, it seems as though we see the exact opposite happen. That in the midst of the failure of their tests, in the midst of becoming indistinguishable from the other nations and their gods, it does not result in God abandoning them, but it is rather in the failure of Israel that God's nature and character is on display because he saves them rather than abandons them. Check this out. For all intents and purposes, God should have left them because their sin is actually communicating what sin always communicates towards God. And it's this, I can be a better God than you can. When the Israelites looked at uh, God and when the Israelites looked at their surroundings and said, oh, well, you told me very clearly I ought not to make covenants, I ought not to worship their gods, but I think that I'm just ultimately a better king and a better God than you are, God, so I'm going to do whatever I want. Can you just imagine the ridiculousness of that moment? Let me try to frame it like this. You imagine if, if you were like a boss at work and one of your employees came up to you or even a customer came up to you, pointed their finger in your face and said, I can be a better boss than you are. I could run this company better than you can. Imagine, imagine this though. Imagine you're, you're kicking it at high V with, you, with your kids and uh, someone just randomly walking the, the aisles, walks up to you and your children puts their finger in your face and says, I can parent your children better than you can. What if, what if a, a, a man came up to you and said, I, I can love your wife better than you can? Or a woman came up to you and said, I, I could love your husband better than you. The same thing happens when we sin. We look at God and we say, I can be a better God than you can be. 
That's what the Israelites have effectively said towards God. <laughs> now, what would you do in that situation? I'm not going to give you time to think about it. I'm just glad that I'm not God, right? Because I wouldn't, I would have just been like, <laughs> good luck, right? Like that, that's not what he does though. God doesn't just abandon them. He doesn't give them over to their sin and, and their brokenness uh, forever. He doesn't abandon them e- eternally. It's actually in the midst of this we begin to see the nature and character of God towards them, revealing that he would save them as they would call out to him. Like what we're going to see here emerging in this introductory portrait to the book of Judges is a consistent pattern between God and his people. So uh, I want you to just, if you're taking notes, write these five things down. I'm going to show you a pattern. I'm actually going to show you the map before I take you on the journey through this text. Uh, But here's the pattern that we see uh, unfold through each of the lives of the judges in our text this morning. Here it is. Here's the pattern of Israel. Uh, First, we see God's people do evil. Then we see consequences and oppression come as a result of that evil. Then eventually, the third thing we find is that Israel cries out to be rescued. The fourth thing that happens then is God provides a judge. And the fifth thing that happens is the judge delivers and the land has rest. So God's people do evil. Consequences and oppression come as a result. Israel cries out to be rescued. Uh, God provides a judge and the land has rest. So that's the map. That's the pattern. Let's let's continue reading through Judges 3 and, and see if what I've just unpacked to you is actually the pattern that we see in this text. So chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Those are two uh, different false gods at the time, false idols. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the land of Kushan Rithathium. Don't worry if you can't say that. King of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan for eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othaniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan. So the land had a rest for 30 years. Then Othanel, son of Kenaz, died. Did you see the pattern? Did, did you see the pattern as we walked through it? Did you see the people do evil? And then there were consequences and oppression as a result of it? And then they cried out to God for a deliverer, and he provided one? And then uh, that deliverer showed up. God provided that judge. And then we see at the very end, the land had rest for 40 years. <coughs> well, that's one example. Let, let's, see, let's see if that, that keeps happening. Verse 12. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. 
And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. The Bible does not pull punches. Okay. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out of his presence. And Ehud came close, and as he was sitting alone on his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went as far in as the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Guys, seriously, you got to read the Bible. This is crazy stuff. Okay. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked him. You may be thinking right now, how did they let this dude in the chambers uh, armed? Well, he was a left-handed man. They didn't expect that. They wouldn't expect him to be a right-handed man. They would have checked his left thigh for the sword. So instead, he's able to go in because he's left-handed with the sword on his right side. They didn't check that. Now he's able to actually kill this man. Pick it up from verse 24. This is incredible. When he'd gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet in the cool chamber. Now remember... The dung came out after he was assaulted. So they're not saying that with, with just like, oh, maybe that happened. They're probably smelling it. Being very honest with you. That's kind of what's happening here in this text. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And they had escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syria. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the, the people of Israel went down with him into the hill country. And he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Did you see the pattern? The people did evil again. They experienced consequences for their sin. They cried out for a deliverer. The deliverer came, wrecked the king, and then ended up providing a way for them to be saved. And as a result, not 40 years of rest this time, but 80 years of rest Do you see the pattern, Stonebridge? God provides heroes who bring his people rest. Now, there's one last verse to this chapter, and it's one, (laughs) I love this verse. This is the only reference, this is the reference to this dude uh, in in this chapter. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an oaks god, and he also saved Israel. So we don't see the pattern there. He's not necessarily considered a major judge. He's considered a minor judge. It's interesting because we can actually see he's a foreigner, even that was fighting on behalf of the Israelites. That's very interesting. And it's just also like, guys, the Bible's super cool. Like the fact that this dude killed 600 of the enemy with an oaks god is, is, is in ox goad. Sorry, ox goad. I've said an oaks god, didn't I? All right, help me out. Help me out, Stonebridge. Um, with an oaks ox goad there it is with an ox goad uh it's incredible that he was able to do that empowered and strengthened by the lord don't see the pattern there but he's not necessarily considered one of the primary judges it's a little bit of bible trivia for you but did you see the pattern god provides heroes to bring his people rest now there are two things that are very interesting that we need to point out before we can move on from here here's the first thing uh 
This is revealing nothing less than the grace of God because he provides the deliverer, he provides the judge, regardless of what his people have done. He doesn't look at them when they cry out to help from him and say, no, you, you, you haven't done enough. You, you haven't executed enough. You haven't followed me hard enough. No, you haven't done. That's not what happens. See, they sinned against him blatantly by disobeying him, by, by making covenants with others, by following and worshiping their other gods. And here's what he does when they call out to him. He provides a hero that brings the people rest. So he does it first and regardless of what they've done. And second, he does it regardless of what they have become. They have intermarried into these other nations that they were supposed to remain separate from. They have worshipped false gods, becoming followers of them and not of Yahweh, the true God. They don't deserve the grace of God because of what they've done. They did not earn it based on what they've done. They could not deserve it based on what they've become. And yet God provided a hero to deliver and bring rest when they cried out in desperation to him. Necessity in that moment drove this people to pray. It was in those moments where they could not, where they realized they could not save themselves, that they finally looked to the one who could save them. They finally recognized they were a helpless, hopeless people in need of rest, and they cried out to God for it. And incredibly, He answered and provided these judges to protect them, to deliver them, and to bring them rest. Stonebridge Church. That is an incredible reality of our incredible God. But it goes even further because it is not just in the book of Judges that this happens. We actually can find this pattern all over the Bible. You see, when when a hopeless nomadic tribe of people was sure to be wiped out by a global famine, God allowed a member of that tribe to be sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, and then positioned to interpret a dream from the most powerful man in the world at the time, who was the Pharaoh of Egypt, after which this dream interpreter, Joseph, is made the second most powerful man in the world. And as a result, he saves this small nomadic tribe of his family, which are known as the Israelites. God provided a hero. When that same tribe was hopelessly enslaved centuries later in Egypt, God caused a Hebrew child to be raised up as a son for Pharaoh's daughter. He would later be exiled for seeking violent justice on the behalf of his people, spoken to by God through a burning bush, and eventually Moses would lead the Israelites out of Egypt, across the split sea, and through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land. God provided a hero. Centuries later, God would raise up a woman and allow her to be the chosen wife of one of the most savage rulers of the time, Artaxerxes, and put to end a plot against a man named Haman who was intending to wipe out the people of Israel. And she does this because she was reminded by her uncle Mordecai that she'd been raised up for such a time as this. And Esther is the hero that God provided for Israel in that moment. And in fact, at one point, God would turn his attention to a pagan nation, a people who had no desire for God and who were wicked in their treatment of others and their treatment of idolatry. And yet God would send a prophet to bring a message of destruction to them and they would repent and turn from their sins. That dude's name was Jonah. God consistently provides heroes for the people that he desires to come to know him. It's the pattern of judges is the pattern of God. God's people do evil. Consequences and oppression come as a result of sin. His people cry out to be rescued and desperation. And God provides a judge, a savior, a deliverer, someone with a message of good news. And then the land or that people have rest. They experience shakwa. They experience freedom from war and from battle. They experience freedom and true 
peace. This is what God does. He provides a hero for people who don't earn it and can't deserve it. But we experience and see this continued echo of the kindness of God. We got to ask just one question before we kind of move on to closing this time out. And, and it's this, though. When, when you look at the story of Judges as you studied it last week, study it this week, and study it for some weeks to come, I've got to ask this question. Um, who are, are you in this story? When you, when you read this, do you look at the story and immediately think, okay, cool, I, I think I could be Othaniel? I, I think I could be Ehud. I think I could be Shamgar. I wonder, I wonder, Stonebridge, if you read this story in the Bible and think, oh, I, I think I could be the hero of this story. And I think we, we're inclined to believe that sometimes. I think we want to be the one who, who saves the day. From some of our earliest experiences, the stories we've heard, the culture that's been created around us, we see that the hero gets the attention, the accolade, the praise, and the glory, and the position. They get it all. We can see many parts of the Bible, even the book of Judges, actually uh, misconstrued sometimes to show us situations in which we ought to be the hero. You can see things like shift the battlefield and you'll win in business, play to your strengths and you'll, sub, you'll, you'll overcome these obstacles, be clever and you'll succeed. Are these ideas inherently bad? Are some of the books that contain them inherently bad? No, I, I don't think so, but they're just really, really bad biblical commentaries. Because the stark reality of this hero mentality is that it can actually create something really unhealthy inside of us. Create a really unhealthy way of reading the Bible in which we continue to read story after story after story and think, oh, if I try hard enough, if I do enough, then I'll earn or I'll deserve the right to be the hero. And guys, that is exhausting. And it's not true. This story in this one chapter these stories, are, are, they're not about us. This, this Bible was not written with us as the main character of it. You are not the hero of these stories. We, we even can experience the exhaustion of following Jesus when we continue to try to read the Bible or, or look at this as though we are the hero. When, when I think of myself as the hero is when following Jesus often is the most exhausting. I'm trying to be what I was never intended to be. When I think of myself as the hero is when reading the Bible is taxing and laborious because I'm reading every single place where there's a hero and I'm thinking that I need to be that thing. And when I think of myself as the hero, I can look at the world around me. It's actually when I can begin to feel the most hopeless about seeing God do anything in my city, anything in my life, anything in the people who are around me. And if I'm honest, it's when I try to be the hero or when I think I need to be the hero that following Jesus is the most exhausting and I feel the most helpless. It's when I feel the most restless. We've got to come to terms with the fact that we are not the hero of this story. The reality is that we are actually just the rest of the Israelites in this story. And the pattern of the people of God is actually our pattern. We're also those who sin and do evil against God. We are also those, if we're honest with ourselves, this week perhaps even have experienced the consequences and weight of our own sin. And guys, that can seem to be a hopeless thing. That can seem to be a stressful, turmoil, anxiety-driving thing inside of us. 
But here's the hope of the Bible. Here's the hope even that this story in Judges chapter three can reveal to you. That's not where the pattern ends. We see that there's a third step, that those who are needy and desperate actually cry out to God. And there's a beauty of the fourth step is that he provides a deliverer. He provides a savior. And here is the greatest news in the history of all the world. In the depth of our brokenness and sinfulness and restlessness, when we go to God in desperation, he does what he's always done. He provides a hero for his people so that we might know rest. And that hero's name is Jesus. He's the true and better hero bringing a true and better rest. Where the judge's victory was partial, Jesus' victory is total. Where the judge's rest is temporary, Jesus promises us a eternal rest. Where the judges were broken by their sin, Jesus was broken for our sin. There is a beautiful reality to being able to see this pattern and actually not grow hopeless and not grow restless more and more so, but actually looking at this pattern and being honest with ourselves and admitting we are those who have sinned and we are those who face the consequences and oppression for our sin. But in our time of need, when we recognize that we can't save ourselves, God answers our prayer when we cry out for a deliverer and he's provided it for us in Jesus Christ who came and lived this perfect life that we could never live and died the death that we deserved on the cross, taking our sin from us in that moment, placing our sin on him so that he would become sin, though we knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He is our better hero. Here's what's incredible. When, when Othniel goes, there's still Cushites after he defeats that nation. They still exist. When Ehud goes, there are still Moabites, even though he defeats the king of that nation. When Jesus brings victory, though, he brings a complete and a total victory. There is no more power that sin has. There is no more power that death has over those who are in him. He is our better hero. He is our better savior. And he is our better judge. We're not the hero. Jesus is. He's perfectly saved us because he's the better hero. And he perfectly gives us rest because he brings an eternal rest. So now the question we have to ask ourselves, Stonebridge, is, is how do we live in light of that reality? If we look at the book of Judges and we see a broken savior, that points us to the Savior that was broken for us, Jesus Christ. How now do we live in light of him by God being guided through the text? I want to just give you two things. I'm going to take my seat. Here, here's the first one. Uh, remember your rest. Sober Church, remember your rest. You see, what, what we see happen really consistently, you see it in verse 7, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see this consistent narrative of the people of Israel forgetting. So because they forgot, they continued to do evil. Stonebridge Church, I want to ask you to remember. Remember your rest. Remember that you did not create your own rest, that you did not earn it, you didn't deserve it. Any of the, the rest of the assurance that you're going to get to spend eternity with God because of the work of Jesus has already been sealed. It's already been accomplished. It's already been done. We only need to turn to him and put our trust and hope in Jesus. It's already sealed. It's already complete. He is our better hero. 
So we can remember our rest. We can remember the one who gives us rest. We can remember the rest that is to come. And in moments of restlessness, rather than giving in to trying to create our own rest, we actually can trust that we have, can preach the gospel to ourselves and receive and remember that rest yet again. We can let the sealing of our rest be like a fresh drink of water to our souls as we remember what Augustine said, that we will be restless until we find our rest in him. Remember your rest. Remember that Jesus has brought rest to your storm-tossed, sinful soul and has made you new in himself. Remember your rest. The second thing I want to tell you guys is this. Follow your hero. Look at verse 28 one more time. And then he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. After they saw what God had done through their hero, the people followed after him towards the establishment of rest. Here's what's incredible. Jesus is the perfect model of our perfect hero that we actually now get to follow after. He's the perfect forgiver of us for all those times that we attempted to not follow him, that we wanted to go after other things than him. And now he is our means of following him. We don't follow Jesus because we woke up one day and decided to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus because we recognize more and more fully how incredible and how beautiful the gospel is. And it is the grace that we receive in following Christ that actually empowers us and is our means of following after Jesus. You know, look at the brokenness in your city. Trust that he's already working on it. He already sees that. And we're actually following after him to see rest in our land, rest among our people. If you're looking at people who are, are next to you at your workplace or at, at your school, you can trust that he desires for them to know eternal rest more than you want them to know it. So you can follow him towards them and share the gospel with them. And he is your empowerment and your means of doing that. In and of yourself, if it seems that there is a sin struggle that perhaps is too great or too strong, there's beauty in the reality that he actually is your perfect rest, that he is now your means of seeing that sin conquered and defeated. He is a better hero that brings a better rest. And I want to tell you if you're in this space, in this room, if you don't know Jesus, that he actually can be your hero. He can be your rest that you can be freed from stri- to stop trying to be your own hero and stop trying to create your own rest and you can look to him. He will be your hero and he will be your rest and we will rest in that reality that we all desperately need him to be our hero because we are his people and he brings that better rest. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we look at your word. We, we look at, at these judges and we see... Um, a people who are sinful, a people who uh, rebelled against you, people who fought against you. We look at the people of Israel and we see ourselves. We look at this pattern and we see our pattern. We are people of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips and yet you have allowed our eyes to see you, O Lord Almighty. We are sinners in need of a savior. We who have accepted you need the gospel just as much as that day when we first heard it. God, we face the consequences of our sin every single day. And yet when we cry out to you to deliver us, you do. 
You sent Jesus to be that perfect judge, that perfect savior. And now we are those who know rest. We are those who know, know, who, who know that one day we're gonna be in your perfect presence We'll never experience the weight of sin again. We'll never experience the shame of sin again. We'll never experience the brokenness of sin again. We'll just know you and greater joy for all eternity. It won't be a temporary victory leading to a temporary rest. Oh, but Jesus, you provided the ultimate victory so that we might know an eternal rest. So we confess that we need you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name.